0: Guides my way. To read the scriptures that David is going to preach to us from in just a moment. So we're in Exodus chapter 23. You've already had a hint at it from Walter, but I shall read you the verses 14 to 18. Exodus 23, verses 14 to 18. About these celebrations. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labours from what you sow in the field. Also, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labours from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. Let's pray for you, David. Lord Jesus, thank you for David. Lord, thank you for all that he has prepared to share with us this morning. We pray you'd fill him now with your Holy Spirit. And may these words give us strength and life, Lord. May they be like manna to us for the days and the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Some years ago, and it is actually quite a long time ago, Anne and I were in Afghanistan. And um, at that time, the leader of the work of Shelter International was an American. And um, when we were out there, he'd gone back to America for, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something, home leave. And in that time, um, there's an urgent decision came up, and... I was delegated to read, uh, to write the email to him to to get his, because it's important that he was the leader of the work, that he needed to input into the decision. So I, I sent him this email and told him about it and what we needed, and I got no reply. So the next day, I sent him another email and said, look, this is urgent. We need you to reply to this and I got no reply. And so I then got really stroppy and sent him a third email that you as the leader of the fellowship, you ought to be responding to my emails. We need to make this decision. It's important that you um, help us with this decision. And then he phoned me up and he said, the trouble with you Brits is that you don't know anything about our Thanksgiving." And I hadn't realized that it was Thanksgiving in America, and he said to me, he said, for Thanksgiving, all of us travel long journeys to be back with our families, we don't take our computers with us, we have a day of celebration of Thanksgiving, and um, we we eat um, turkey and indigenous foods, Thanksgiving is actually, he didn't say this to me, but I looked it up later, it's a celebration that at the end of, um, I think it was November, after the Pilgrim Fathers had been out for a year, they had survived, and they had survived with the um, help of the native Indians who told them what crops would grow in in that area and also taught them how to catch eels um, so that they could have um, a sort of a fish (laughs) or fish. Dish for them, and um, and it, it was a celebration of that original feast that the Pilgrim Fathers had with these Native Americans who had been so helpful to them. I later read that the uh, unfortunately the, uh, the Native, the English, not the English, the the British people had gone out there, um, gave diseases to some of the Indians which were they were immune to, but the the Native Americans weren't immune to, but. Anyway, this was Thanksgiving. And he was saying to me, don't you realize we don't go looking at our computers in Thanksgiving? We've got more important things to do. And then he replied to me and he gave his decision. And I I thought that was... I mean, my son has now been living out in America 13 or 14 years, and he tells me that Thanksgiving in America is bigger than Christmas, you know. And uh, not only do they have this uh, big meal um, around about in the evening... Um, but they have American football right through the day, <laughs> match after match after match. <laughs> so um, so it, it is very big, and I can see why I didn't get any replies to my emails. The passage that we've been reading is about feasts that God ordains for his people. And in Exodus 23, it, uh, it, it mentions um, three feasts. It mentions um, unleavened bread. It mentions um, first fruits. And then it mentions the ingathering. But you will find through scriptures, through the Mosaic um, scriptures, that not only Exodus 23, but Leviticus 23 also details all the feasts, but it has more feasts. And then also in Deuteronomy chapter 16, it's talking about the feasts. And Deuteronomy sixteen seems much more like Exodus. Leviticus is the one where you have lots more feasts um, in it. but these are the three major ones. Unleavened bread is associated with Passover because um, <clears throat> and the, the other difficulty with looking at these feasts is of course, the calendar and the months. The Jews used to call I say the Jews, the Hebrew people, the people. They used to have certain names for their months before they were exiled into Babylon, and so they were called the pre-exilic months. And when they came back from Babylon, the same months had different names. So it, it dep- depends on on what you're trying to look at. Abib was a pre-exilic month, and on the fourteenth day of that month, you had. Um, the Passover feast, which was followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'll come to that in a minute. The other difficulty, as you look at a lot of this, is the calendar is very different. The Jews of that time, they worked on a lunar calendar, whereas we work on a solar calendar. So our calendar is based on the fact that the earth goes round the sun once in 365 and a quarter days. And so we fiddle it around with four four months having 30 days, um, seven months having 31 days, and one month having 28 days, but in leap year, 29 days, that extra day every four years is to make those four quarters... um, into one. So that's our calendar. The Jews' calendar, as is the whole of Islam's calendar, is a lunar calendar. And it's based on um, the time between new moon and the next time between new moon. And that can be 28, 29, 30 days. And um, at the end of a year, I think they have lost 11 days. Now, in the Islamic calendar, they just lose that 11 years. They don't change it, you see what I mean. So uh, the months vary in their seasons. So over a period of time, Ramadan, the month of fasting in Islam, can be in the winter when it's more easy to fast, and it can also be in midsummer when it's extremely hot and you're not allowed to drink water all day and this sort of thing. So they have a very movable calendar. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were working to, um, I hope I'm making myself clear, they were working to a lunar calendar. But in A, not AD, in BC 46, Julius Caesar made a declaration that all countries within the Roman Empire should work to the Roman calendar. So all the dates that we get in the New Testament are basically our dates, because it's, it's, it's our calendar that we work, and months don't change. January, if you're in, a, in, in England, is always one of the cold months, and July, theoretically, should be one of the hot months. It doesn't vary from year to year. Okay. That's because we're working on that calendar. Now, the Jewish calendar doesn't synchronize with us uh, if for us, January is counted as the first month of the year and December is the twelfth month. In all our calendars. For the Jews, the first month of the year, this month of Abib that they mention in the text actually occurred sometime between March and April. Right? So when the Passover was sometime between March and April, and when they talk about the seventh month. For us, we'd be talking about July. They're actually talking about October, November. It, 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 sorry, I, it's, it's quite hard to get synchronized because you read these things, but you, you've got to work out, um, A, um, are, are they pre-exilic dates or post-exilic dates? Um, and are they the old um, moon calendar, lunar calendar, or are they... The subsequent, the New Testament, fortunately, well, I say, for, fortunately for us Brits, is, is based on Julius Caesar's calendar, which is the Roman calendar, which is our calendar. Hope I haven't confused you. <laughs> what the Lord says, and the first thing He says in this, through Moses, He says, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to Me." This is a feast that they are celebrating God. And we will look into that later. And it has a stricture that none of you shall come empty-handed. And every male, mandatory, has to attend it. If you are in the Hebrew people and you are a male, you must attend the feast. The women were permitted to go to the feast, but I guess um, but they, they didn't, it wasn't mandatory upon them. And I guess that with bigger families, childcare, all sorts of issues that would be faced in in that type of society, it was harder for a woman to go off um, and and go to the feast. But it wasn't mandatory, but they could go. That's what uh, I read. And you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with unleavened bread. Now, we tend to think of feasts as, um, as good food, don't we? Um, uh, we tend to have, think of Christmas dinner as being a pretty, as far as our finances go, a pretty luxury-type dinner, don't we? So if we're feasting on Christmas Day, we tend to have... But they had to fast on unleavened bread. And they also talk about, nor is the fat of the feast to remain overnight till the morning. and it says the Passover is going to take place on the 14th day of the first month, Abib, and it should be followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's, um, it's probably sometime between March and April that they would have celebrated the Passover. If you're taking their calendar and trying to put it in, into our calendar, And the Feast of the Ingathering, which they say, the final Ingathering, which was the third Feast mentioned, is going to be in the seventh month. That's probably October, November, when all the harvests have been gathered in. What are the purposes of God in setting up these feasts? God is working out his purpose. He's got a purpose for the whole world. But his instrument is going to be the Jewish people to whom the Christ Jesus is going to come. But the purpose is not just for the Jews, and the New Testament very clearly is very keen on the sort of the Gentiles coming in and this sort of thing. But God had to set this up with the people, and the people of uh, Israel, with the people that He set it up as the—I would not say the prototype, if uh, that's an engineering type thing—but uh, okay, it's the prototype of what is to come. And He is setting up these feasts, and it's got to be a holy convocation of gathering and bringing people together. And they're told they have to travel to where the tabernacle was, and later to the temple. They are bonded together in their joint history. The feasts emphasize that the people are a community that belongs to God. It's it's not individuals. I mean, we talk quite a lot about personal salvation, and, and I'm all for personal salvation, but we are also meant to be part of the community of the people who belong to God, for whom, who love God, who love the Lord Jesus. It, and God was trying to set up, so they called it a holy convocation. In this um, um, Leviticus one, they don't so clearly mention the... not in the Exodus one, but in the Leviticus, they talk about the Sabbath also being a holy convocation, that they shall gather together, that they shall meet together. So God is working out his purposes. Now, early on, when when they just had to go to the tabernacle, it was right amongst them. But later on, as they developed and got hold of the the land that became Israel, or however you count it, there would be quite far distances because the temple would have been in Jerusalem, and there were long distances. And of course you get what happens is that people start setting up altars in in different parts. And if you read the book of um, Kings and of Samuel and Kings and and carry on right through, you'll find out that the number where they've gone away from God and they've set up their own worship altars in different places closer to home, they don't have to go down to Jerusalem, and eventually you get the split between uh, Israel and Judah. Um, But, God was wanting them to be a united people who was under their protection and and living for him. Bonded together. They started on the 14th day of the first month. We tend to have New Year resolutions. But they tended to remember what God had delivered them from that was what the passover was the passover was based on the fact that on the night of their deliverance the angel of death swept right through egypt and everything that was first born died unless they had the blood painted on their door which the and on the lintels of their houses when the angel of the power, angel of death passed over didn't go, and let, and that is what they are remembering and that is to be the first feast of their year in the first month, and the unleavened bread was because when they were, uh, when they left, I mean, they were told they couldn't afford to have leavened bread. Leaven means yeast, or um, and it's uh, when I used to watch Anne baking. It, she would put the yeast in the bread, and she'd stick it on our boiler in our kitchen, and she'd wait till the thing rows and then and, so I'm not a baker but uh, yeast is the thing that um, any sugar in the thing is converted to carbon dioxide um, and the, the carbon dioxide tries to escape and it pushes up the dough um, and so the bread rises. But you've got to wait for the time for it to happen and they hadn't got the time. They'd got to be ready to go and so they ate bread where they hadn't put the yeast in where they hadn't allowed it to rise. And I think unleavened bread doesn't taste as nice as leavened bread. I don't think we'd make leavened bread if, it, if unleavened bread did. But that was their feast. They were going to remember that God had acted so swiftly for them on their behalf that they hadn't got time to wait for the bread to rise and then be baked. And so they were, mem- in eating the unleavened bread, they were remembering God acted, not only acted for us, not only did he spare our children, but he acted quickly on our behalf and gave us deliverance And so quickly that there was no time to wait for the bread to rise. And that's the message that this first thing the feast, the Feast of Unleavened, is trying to get to the people of Israel. Your God is a God who cares for you, and who will act swiftly on your behalf. Sometimes it may not seem swiftly enough for us. We have the same things, that God cares for us, that he loves us, that he wants us, and that he will act swiftly on our behalf. Sometimes we don't find it swift enough, <laughs> but that's, that is life. But God does care for us, and he will act on our behalfs. The feasts are partly a reminder of their history, but they are also partly a reminder of God's provision. And so the next feast that is mentioned in this Exodus account is the first fruits of the land. So the first fruits of the land, I think, are... If You you can find out if you look through a thing, when barley gets harvested, when wheat gets harvested, and this thing. I think it was barley was the first um, thing to be harvested in the land. And that took place 50 days after the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the New Testament we call that 50 days Pentecost. Pente being a sort of, I don't know if it's Latin or Greek, but for for 50. Um, And it... that phrase is fifty days. You've got to wait seven sabbaths, and then you, um, and, and then you have the, the, the Pentecost, and that is a, the first fruits, the sign that God is going to provide for you, and that's what you're feasting, and that's what they are talking about, and that the next feast that they mention in this passage, is the one that occurs in the seventh month on the 15th day, the Feast of the Ingathering, when all the harvests have gone in and you're knowing that God has provided for your sustenance for the whole year. And as I say, when they talk about the seventh month, they're meaning probably October, November time, based on their calendar. Um, So God is providing for you. You get the first fruits to show that He is going to provide for you, and you get the ingathering of all the crops and grain to say that he has provided for you. So God's feasts are for them to know that he has cared about them, he's removed them out of danger, even when they've had to go in the wilderness, they have had food to eat, so the unleavened bread is, is, is reminding them of God's provision even in the wilderness. And then they come to the first fruits of Pentecost. And you will understand, of course, there is the link between Pentecost and the disciples when they preach. And at, on the day of Pentecost, what is it, 3,000 or 4,000, I can't remember. I haven't looked up the figures from, my, uh, from time, are added to the church. It's the first fruits, Pentecost. is a a symbol of. Um, Now, there are other feasts that are also talked about, but not in this particular passage. They're talked about in Leviticus, and uh, they're talked about in... uh, Well, mainly in Leviticus. And you've got... um, After Pentecost, you have three um, feasts. Trumpets on the, um, the first day of the seventh month... Then you have, on the 10th day of um, the Day of Atonement, and then you have, on the 15th day of this month, you have the the Feast of the Ingathering, sometimes called the Feast of Booths or Tamalach. And it's to remind them they have to live in tents. It, It reminds them of when God was providing for them in the wilderness, they lived in tents. They didn't have houses. They had to get and move on. And so they lived in tents, and it 's called the Feast of booths and, uh, and And you remember in the New Testament when um, the three disciples see Jesus with Moses and Elijah, and then uh, Peter says, "Shall we make uh, tents for you Ta- Shall we make tabernacles for you? I guess it must have been about the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles and that was in their mind. Shall we make uh, and uh, and then <laughs> Peter gets rebuked and uh, and they all d- the um, Moses and Elijah disappear. So, so what is God's purpose in these feasts? And, of course, later on, besides these feasts that I've mentioned, there were two more feasts that came, but they're not Mosaic feasts. If you read the book of Esther, when um, Haman wants to kill all the Jews throughout the empire, and uh, Esther goes in, and her uncle, is it uncle or thing, Mordecai, um help the king at that time, and the feast, the thing is rebuked, and they institute a feast of Purim that goes right through. But it's not one of the Mosaic feasts, but it's still a feast of the Jews. And then there was another one where in 164 BC, Joseph Maccabeus came in and um, uh, recovered the temple and cleansed the temple, and they, they developed the feast of Hanukkah so that the Jews still, I think, celebrate the feast of Hanukkah and also Purim. But they were not part of the Mosaic feast. They, I mean, uh, certainly um, Hanukkah is mentioned in John's Gospel, and um, uh, Purim is definitely a sort of biblical feast, um, From if you read the book of Esther. So, partly, it's for the people to be continually saying former Holy Convocation, you are people. You are people whom God has blessed and whom God has acted on behalf and God has provided for. So the feasts are a reminder of their history and God's provision, that God has protected and delivered them. We have a thing called November the 5th, um, which is... um, Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot? That was when um, somebody was trying, or said in our history books, was trying to blow up the Houses of Parliament and change the government of this country. And, um, but nowadays, we, we don't celebrate that. We celebrate fireworks, don't we, on November the 5th? And they have fireworks in the park behind my house, which I get a free view of because I just look through the window at it. But uh, didn't half make it. Uh, when I used to look after my daughter's dog, he hated it. <laughs> he would come cowering to me. However, that's sorry. That's not, not of any interest in this. Um, in the UK, we had that. The feasts of each going through are for God's people to teach their children. They have to learn what God is doing has done. And the way that children grow up into it is as they go through the feasts. I guess in our time, they grow up if, if, in, on Easter and they grow up on um, um, Christmas and they grow up on Whitson, or it used to be called Whitson. It's now the spring Bank holiday, isn't it? But on we had, the, when, the, when the church was sort of very more, much more important. We had all these feasts that we had that our people should be taught. They should be taught about the birth of Jesus. They should be taught about the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And they should be taught about the coming of the Holy Spirit to, to really motivate the church. So we had these things too as teaching. So God wanted his people to be taught. One final thing about, it says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Well, we know why that was, because they were remembering um, at the Passover that, um, and then the unleavened bread, that they, they hadn't got time to it. But it also says, um, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. Now, this may seem strange to you, but there are some people throughout the world who think that fat, I'm talking about fat on meat, is the best bet. I, I don't think, uh, well, maybe in my life, my upbringing, people have ever thought the fat was. And um, in the early 1990s, Anne and I had to go out to Mongolia to carry out um, a job in. Um, they call their counties IMAGs, right? And they, each IMAG has a capital town, like um, most counties here have capital towns. And we were sent to five of them, not just An, a whole team, to have a feasibility study because we, we had to see whether um, th- there was any way we could provide water for people. Currently the people in these county towns would walk up to four or five miles to get their water. And in the winter, they'd break through the ice in the rivers, and then they would draw water. And when we were there, you saw whole families going. Little tiny children of about three carrying something like a small flower pot. Do you understand? But all of them going right through to people carrying the weight they could carry. And they'd walk these four miles, and they'd get Um, The water and bring it back. And part of our feasibility study was could we so arrange that there could be a standpipe in each town that no one had to walk more than half a mile to get their water. We had to look at how we would deal with the wastewater. Um, Mongolia had been under Russian domination for 70 years. They got their independence and um, a lot of the things the Russians had provided, one of the things was that they provided hot baths so the people could go and have a hot bath and they could wash their clothes. You got a cubicle, you, you paid a little bit of money, you, you, you were able to bath you and your family and also your... Remember that most Mongolians lived in tents, apart from the Russian blocks, And um, we had to look at the, the solid waste and the town planning and, and all sorts of things like this. And I was leading a team, and we travelled across the whole of Mongolia by jeep which is an experience in itself. Mongolia is half the size of India, uh, and at that time had three million people, um, which was... (laughs) So you could go a whole day driving and you didn't see anyone. Um, It was just very sparsely... But when we went to the town, we were always given a banquet because the, the job was being funded by the Asian Development Bank, and if it went ahead the Asian Development Bank were ready, to, were ready to give very, very good terms um, to Mongolia to, to have all this work done. So we were the popular people when we arrived in the town to do the feasibility study. They really wanted to impress us. And in almost every town that we went to, we were given a banquet. And because I was the team leader, I was the... Um, the head of the banquet, right? Apart from the mayor and all, all the things. But I, I was the head of the banquet. And they would... The, there was always meat. Mongolia is a very meat-eating country. They don't grow any vegetables. So it's... Uh, I met a vegetarian from Oxford University out there doing a study. And I said, how did she live? And she said, with great difficulty. Uh, they didn't have many vegetables in Mongolia. Um, and... Um, but they come to me, because I was the head of the thing and they'd bring this whole meat platter, right, and all the top of it was fat because they thought that's what I would, I would like. I would love to have all that fat. And I used to have to <laughs> shuffle under and try and get all the lean meat underneath all this fat. Now, almost nobody at this, um, in Mongolia in these far remote places spoke English. And one of my teammates who I'd worked at, worked for for very long, was there working. He came on all these things. He was an English guy. And um, what they used to do was they would bring the sheep's head in and put it there. And the, you gave the tongue to whoever wanted to sing better. And uh, and singing in, communal singing in Mongolia was big. It was superb. Anne and I went to some concerts. It was a terrific to hear them singing Um, and you gave the um, the ears to whoever was going slightly deaf and wanted to hear better and you gave the eyes to someone who was going, uh, perhaps had cataracts or going partially blind and um, when they came to me with all this fat on, this English guy he spoke to me, called out to me, he said David I'm so glad I'm not the team leader (laughs) and I called out to him you won't be when you see who gets given the eyes to eat. <laughs> but what I wanted to say is that fat at that time would have been considered very important. And they're talking about you can't reserve the best stuff for the next day as well. It's got to be dealt with. This is actually, the, these feasts, they, they, they take quite a lot of untangling, I've been struggling trying to find out with different passages and then what they mean and this sort of thing. But God's purpose was to let us know that he will protect us, he will ensure that we are able to live, that we will know his love in a deep way, not in, in the matters of provision and caring and love. And these feasts were meant to be celebrations to God, and to thank him for what he was doing for the people. And they went through rough times. Forty years in the wilderness, maybe it was their own fault because they didn't have faith, the original 12, but it was a rough time living in the wilderness when you had to really totally depend on God to give you food and to give you water at times. And I'm not saying that you won't have rough times in your life. That's never the message that you, you know that when I became a Christian, everything was wonderful. It can be, but it can also not be. It can also be that you go through some very rough times. But what you do know is that God will provide for you. He will never let you down. He will. He's always there at your side. And from a young age to an old age, God cares about you and whatever you are going through. He doesn't stop necessarily the pains of life that occur but he cares for you and he loves you and I think that's the message you get out of these fees he wants you to celebrate his love and his care for you whether it's the deliverance from enemies, whether it's the provision of food and to, to live, whatever it is you need, he knows about you and he cares for, about you Oh man! That... you're leaving but abide in me so richly. As I abide in you, let surely